Thank you for joining us for this online presentation of the services from Stony Point Church in Richmond, Virginia. The service will begin in just a few moments. This is an online presentation of Stony Point Church in Richmond, Virginia. The service will begin in just a few moments. Thank you for joining us for this online presentation of the services from Stony Point Church in Richmond, Virginia. The service will begin in just a few moments. This is an online presentation of Stony Point Church in Richmond, Virginia. The service will begin in just a few moments.
Thank you for joining us for this online presentation of the services from Stony Point Church in Richmond, Virginia. The service will begin in just a few moments. song Craig okay choir it's time to stand and sing our gathering song as we begin to worship our living God Christ our Savior let's sing rising sun
Please be seated. Good morning, church. What amazing time, what amazing privilege we have just to be here one more time. And I shared this morning with the church that we have this great opportunity just to stop for a second, for a couple hours, and contemplate the God that we serve. Maybe you were rushing over here. Maybe things did not went well this morning. Maybe the kid didn't want to get dressed. Maybe you did not find the clothing that you want. Maybe the I-95 was insane. Whatever it happens. Or maybe you are full of joy. You just seems being so happy to be here. But now this is the time that we have just to contemplate and to say, God, we are in your house. And we are going to worship you. Our call of worship is based on Psalm 96. And we read together. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous work among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all. All God's. God, we adore you because you are a great God. You are the Alpha and Omega. You are our peace. You are our fortress. You are our refuge. You are our protector. You are our Father, our Savior, and our Counselor. Thank you for this chance, for this opportunity, God, just to to concentrate, God, and just to worship you because of who you are, Lord. Because of the testimony that we have here from ages to ages of your work, your marvelous work, and for the work that you are perfecting in us. Thank you, God. And we pray in the way that you teach us, Lord, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as he also has forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. And yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's stand and sing together our hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise.
Please be seated. One of the risks that we encounter when we, when we do things repeatedly is just for those uh, things to start losing their value. In the same way that I just welcome you this morning and encourage you just to, to make this time, you know, the time of, of, of your worship, the time, of when the, uh, the time and place where you worship God. In that same spirit, I just welcome you and encourage you then now that we are going to go to, to our confession uh, of sin, uh, then make it yours. This is not another checkbox in our liturgy that we need just to go through and say, okay, we did the, 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 the hymn, we did this, we did that, confession, check. This is our, a time where we say, God, I have to trust in you. I have to, you know, to rely on you because it doesn't matter. I continue seeing all these areas in my life that I need to confess and that I need to trust in you, that I need to trust that I'm safe and that, I, that, I, that you're going to continue perfecting your work in me. And we read as a, as a church our confession of sin based on James chapter 4. God opposed the proud but give grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sin. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Stony Point, this is the good news. This morning we have the opportunity to spend a prayer time focused on mission. So if you to actually grab inside of your bulletin this insert, you can see a little bit about uh, Students International. And then on the back side of it, other mission opportunities that are coming up. We are excited that after these last couple years, uh, doors are opening more for international travel for us to be able to meet and serve with some of our mission partners overseas, including this new mission partner that we have, Students International. Michael Bryan and I were able to go down in November for a vision trip to meet with student international leaders as well as see some of the project sites and we are excited to be able to announce this partnership with Students International uh, for us to be able to serve there in the Dominican Republic and the other locations that they are placed. 
but also to use this as an opportunity as a part of our leadership development here at Stony Point Church with students uh, and young adults. So we'd encourage you guys to take a little bit of time to read this information. We're going to be having an, in, uh, an info lunch on March 13th, but the deadline uh, for that project in the Dominican Republic, the sign-up is March 15th. So we'd encourage you to pray and take part in that as you are able. But also wanted to remind you of a mission info dinner that is coming up next week, uh, viewing the movie Unplanned, and then there will be a panel discussion afterwards. There's a sign-up table right out here in the hallway, and we encourage you to take part in that as you are able. But let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a God that delights in redeeming, that you are in that process of making all things new, and you use us to do that, and for that we are thankful. Thank you that you are a God of mission that includes us in your mission, that works in and through us to draw others to yourself and to build your kingdom here on earth. Lord, we pray for the many ways in the last handful of years in which you have opened up doors of opportunity for us into the Hispanic community, into the Caribbean, into South America, here with homework helpers and also with our Spanish service tonight at five. Lord, we praise you for these opportunities that you have given us. And we ask that your grace might come alongside of us as we serve and as we minister. We pray that you would open up doors for the gospel Open up our eyes to see them and give us feet to walk through those doors to proclaim your love and your grace and your mercy to us. Father, as we do involve ourselves in mission, we pray for your grace that we might be tender to your spirit so that we speak when we should and we shut up when we shouldn't speak. Help us to show your love and your truth in that way. We pray that as we travel that you would protect us. We pray for spiritual growth among those that are involved in these mission projects as well as those to whom we serve. We pray that you would use these projects to draw others to yourself. And as we go, Lord, we pray that you would help us to maintain our dependence on you, knowing that you are the God that gives faith, that draws in your time. Help us to remain dependent upon you when plans change in ways that confuse or even might frighten us. May we rest in who you are. And as we live our lives here and as we go abroad, we pray for opportunities to share the gospel. Lord, help us to use those opportunities to again proclaim the message of grace and love to those that need it. Help us to remember that today people are dying and will spend an eternity apart from you. Lord, we pray that through these mission projects, particularly through our opportunity with Students International, that you might call some of the people from Stony Point Church to be full-time missionaries. And if that is not the case for them, Lord, we pray that you would give them a bent toward ministry in whatever vocation you give them. Lord, in all these things, we glorify you because you are the God that is mighty to save. 
You are a God that delights to do that and delights to use us in that process. May we never forget our true calling here on earth to glorify you and enjoy you forever and proclaim your love to the nations. For your glory we pray. Amen.
Kids aged three to six, come on up and join me for the children's sermon. And while they're coming up, I wanted to draw your attention to a couple things that are in the bulletin on the page with the purple at the top. We'll have a new Sunday school class starting March 6th on conversational evangelism. There's a good morning men's retreat coming up and a women's fellowship breakfast so check those things out have a seat guys uh, the kids will be coming back to you after children's worship during the last song good morning it is so good to see you guys today i'm really glad that you are here and i know that god is glad you are here today too now tell me do you guys have a job anybody has a job they go to work every day no you yes your daddy and your mom might go to work yeah yeah uh-huh oh she stayed home today yeah well some of your parents might have jobs that they go to where they are a doctor or a teacher or they work on computers lots of different kinds of jobs you can yes yeah works at home i know okay great well, let me tell you today about an important job that Jesus gave to his disciples. All right, let's talk about disciples for a minute. Now, the disciples were friends of Jesus. They followed him, and they learned all the things that he had to teach them. They were important people. Does anybody know how many disciples there were? Do you remember that? Yeah, Matthew. Good job. There were 12 disciples, and the job that Jesus gave them to do was to go to tell people all about him and that God's kingdom was coming to heal people and to tell them how much God loved them. So that was the job that Jesus gave the disciples. So you're going to hear more about that in children's worship today. Now let's pray together. Can you guys bow your heads, close your eyes? Lord, thank you that you keep your promises, that after Adam and Eve sinned, you promised to send a rescuer, and you did. You sent us Jesus. Thank you that you provided a way for us to have a relationship with you. Thank you for each of these children, and I pray, Lord, that you will increase their faith. I pray that you will strengthen their parents as they raise them and guide them. Thank you for bringing each of them here today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thanks for joining me. There's some people right this way to tell you more about that in children's worship. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is Daniel chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 18, which is located in our church Bibles on page 739. Please stand, if you're able, as we read from the Old Testament. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors 
the councillors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods? or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and to worship the image I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Please be seated. Let's pray as we come to this text this morning. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Father, we cling to those words because it's still true after all of these thousand of years that you alone and your rescue are all that we have. All that remains with us, all that is praiseworthy, and your law, your word, your Bible is what shows us that that salvation is true, and it's through that that you communicate to us the hope of the gospel. 
So we pray this morning, Lord, that for us also, this might be our delight and this might be what we long for. In Christ's name, amen. Heroes uh, in this day and age are hard to come by, so sometimes we need to go to other ages to find them. The year was 1556, the month was February. Thomas Cramner, Archbishop of Canterbury, was 66 years old. Cramner, author of the Book of Common Prayer, architect of the Protestant Reformation in England, the same Cramner who steered Henry VIII through his six marriages and ends of marriages, the same Cramner who oversaw England's break with Rome, the same Cramner who, upon the deaths of Henry VIII, and Edward VI faced the fury of Henry's daughter, Mary Tudor. For Mary was hell-bent on revenge and the reversal of the Protestant Reformation in England. She had Cramner imprisoned and put under every kind of pressure to publicly uh, recant, to deny his Protestant faith. Why? Well, because not unlike the regime we're going to talk about this morning, even absolute monarchs are not absolute in their power. They need to control their people by intimidation and propaganda victories. So the goal was to degrade the morale and trash the reputation of a man like Cramner before proceeding to dismantle his work and destroy his body. And of course, the Tudors, if you know of them, they were masters of, shall we say, persuasion. Cramner had seen his two best friends burn to death before his eyes in Oxford in 1555 with a not very subtle message that the same fire was being prepared for him. And then after two years in prison, the news came that the date for his execution had been set. So afraid and terribly alone, he did what you and I would probably have done. He gave in. He signed his recantation of the gospel 466 years ago this week, declaring that all that he had taught about Christ and the sacraments and the priesthood and the nature of biblical authority were utterly false. It was as if the clock of his life had simply been turned back 25 years to a time before he'd read the Bible for himself. Had Bloody Mary won? Did the Tudors again have the last brutal word? Well, it's not quite the end of the story, as I'll tell you in a few minutes. But it's a good introduction here, because let's remember, passages like this one in Daniel are not morality plays, nor are they pep talks for Sunday school, nor parables of unrealistic reassurance. Go with God, and your ways will always be happy, and you will always be safe and secure. But the promise is, through it all, God will not abandon you. That's the encouragement of this passage. The Bible says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Instead, be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ as God works in you by his spirit. So three reminders from this passage this morning. We're going to look at all of the verses of this chapter, more or less. If you'll turn to the reading, you can find it on the back page of the bulletin or uh, in total in the Bible itself, of course. So three reminders. This is the first reminder. You must not abandon the Lord when the world asks you who it is that you worship, verses 1 through 11. They stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. 
you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Nebuchadnezzar the Great didn't get his title for nothing. He was one of the great personalities of history, certainly one of the great conquerors, one of the great builders. And we read here about something else that he built, verse 3, this statue which he set up of himself in a prominent place. At about 90 feet high and about 9 feet wide, it was obviously not a realistic depiction of the king, any more than a Barbie doll is a realistic depiction of a woman. But with these dimensions, I think it probably looked a bit like a giant Pez dispenser, (laughs) an obelisk with a huge head on top of it and all of it overlaid in gold. It's an extraordinary scene. And who's there? Well, again, let's scale this right. Probably hundreds of people rather than tens of thousands of people. And these were the upper ranks of the Babylonian civil service. Who's not there? Well, there's no mention, you'll notice, of Daniel through this entire chapter. And no sign at this point in the narrative of his three friends. They are presently absent, but people have been watching. When you hear the music, you bow down. One of the interesting things about dictators is while they project a larger-than-life confidence, they're usually, either by personality or by situation, nervous people, excessively anxious people. So it's probably not a coincidence that Nebuchadnezzar's building of this statue comes right after his dream in chapter 2, as if to construct an alternate reality from the dream. This statue will stand, and no one will come against it. You know, archaeologists found an inscription on one of the gates of Babylon in the early part of the 20th century, And this were the words that they found inscribed there. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, glorious prince, worshipper of Marduk, glorifier of Naboo, firm not to be destroyed, lord of peace, king of Babylon am I. One of history's great egos. But it ends by saying this, and I thought this was interesting. From the east to the west may I have no enemies. And then these telling words, may they not be multiplied within in the midst of this house, meaning Babylon. In other words, the very people who were invited to this event in chapter 3. This is really probably no different to modern-day North Korea, where the population are gathered to salute the statues of the Kim family, as they do each year. When you hear the music, you bow down, if you know what's good for you. But in Babylon, for the most part, the pressure to conform was far more subtle than that. Notice here that these three are not being asked to renounce their own private worship. They're not being told that they may not be Jews. They're simply being asked to participate in this political worship drama. And that, of course, is the one thing these Jews cannot do. I think it's worth reflecting when you come to passages like this one about the movement of history within our own times, the things that we remember and the things we forget. There is a tendency to glorify the past and to defame uh, the present among Christians, but that's not necessarily so. There are some things that are better today than they used to be, but some things have changed. After all, there was a time in this country and in the West broadly where you would not be asked to condone or join with or affirm anything that wasn't acceptable to you as a Christian, maybe 60 or 70 years ago. 
Again, I think we forget how much the world has changed. I was watching a great old movie from 1959, A Journey to the Center of the Earth, which is vastly superior, by the way, to the Brendan Fraser uh, example. And at the climax of the movie, Pat Boone, and this was before his conversion, uh, begins to pray, Dear God, he's, this is in the script of the movie, ruler of heaven and earth. He's praying in the middle of an action movie. And James Mason, who plays the craggy old scientist, interrupts him. Don't set any limit to his realm, laddie. <laughs> and so Boone, chastised, continues, God of the universe, we are in thy merciful hands. This wasn't a, a Christian movie. It was just an expression of what was common in the culture in one of the blockbuster movies of 1959. Things, I would put it to you, have changed. Not only has the tide, I suppose, turned against us, turned against the church, but also we can't hide in a way that we used to be able to. The world, as it did with these three men, has noticed that Christians are missing and are calling them out, calling us out in a new way in our history. So when your teacher at school scoffs at people who believe that the world was made by God, or your professor in college challenges the idea of an absolute and revealed morality, or your workmates ridicule around the water fountain the idea that people could be so arrogant as to believe that Christ was the only way to God, you see what's happening all around us. This has been true now for 30 years. These statues are being erected and our worship is being demanded by the world. Christians are being called out. When you hear the music, will you bow down? And yes, it's uncomfortable, it's scary. We would much rather keep our faith here during these couple of hours on a Sunday morning within these four walls, secret and compartmentalized. But it is striking when you read the Gospels, this is the standard of loyalty from the God who insists that we don't hide him away. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this unfaithful and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be unshamed of him when he comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels around him. You see, I think this allegiance to Jesus is going to become increasingly costly and increasingly more observed. For you, as for all those who bear his name, you must not abandon him when in private settings or in public ones, you have the opportunity to worship him. A second reminder, he won't abandon you when the call comes to be brave and to be obedient, verses 12 through 18. This is the king again, as uh, Stephen read to us. Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? People have noticed that there's something perhaps unintentionally comic about the way this is written. I thought Stephen did a brilliant job, almost Monty Python-ish in the way that his repetition went. Perfect, actually, for the way that this is written. On the one hand, right, the narrator is telling us again and again what a feat of ego this was on Nebuchadnezzar's part. Verses 1, 2, 3, 5, 7, 12, and 14. Who has set this statue up of himself? Well, Nebuchadnezzar has set up the statue of himself. Or this whole musical production with this long list of instruments that for some bizarre reason need each of them to be repeated. You see this verse 5, 7, 9, and 10. 
the whole Imperial Chamber Orchestra has to warm everybody up to give them their, their musical cue. And you can imagine the, the sudden interruption. I imagine the bagpipes kind of deflating. <laughs> when the Jews are found to be missing and they have to start the whole thing over again. And behind it all, this message to a beloved populace, the message of the fiery furnace to the fans of the king, worship Nebuchadnezzar is probably better than being burned to death. One of the things I think the church doesn't make nearly enough use of is humor and satire against the claims of uh, those who disagree with us. The Russians who have lived with totalitarianism um, are experts at this. I love the Ukrainian comic uh, Yakov Smirnov. Perhaps you've heard of him. Uh, in America, he says, you can always find a party. In Russia, party find you. <laughs> and the weakness of dictatorships, as you know, is that the threat of violence is really the only motivation ever to finally do anything. So Nebuchadnezzar has these three men brought before him, and this is his best and last shot. If you don't worship, you will be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. But notice here their response. It's almost rude. It's certainly heedless of their own safety. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Literally, there's no need for us to mince your words. It's, if that's your threat, bring it on. Although we take some pride from living in a free country, in some ways I think we're not so far from this now in Western culture. We've already begun to see uh, the first strains of it in the last 10 or so years. The way that words are being used to control people uh, does seem somewhat Stalinist. It's usually to give you the false choice of either signing up totally to somebody's agenda or, if you won't, then being labelled and punished in the public arena as a kind of social leper. And it usually follows a, a rather patently weak false dilemma argument. But you notice how the three of these, these three men respond to the king and to his decree. It's essentially saying we're not going to play that game. This is what we believe and this is whom we follow. This is what we're about. And I think we can learn a lot from following their example, not by hiding away, notice, they don't remain silent, but by engaging with their critics and with those who scoff. I don't think this needs to be done in any particular angry way or mean way or vengeful way or defensive way. After all, we have the high ground, or at least I think the person we follow does. So you can speak kindly to those who disagree with you and love them as you're saying this. But I think you can say, and these are the issues of today, if you're talking about love, I align myself totally with the one person who has ever shown himself to be loving. And if you're talking about value, value for human beings, I stand totally with the one person who has created human beings in his value and with his dignity, and he has set that value at the cross of his own death. And if you're telling me that I must dance to your tune and not to his, I don't dance. You don't have the standing for the argument you are making. I'm going to love people and value people on his terms not yours. I suspect now that the conversation has gotten to such a point that we need to be a bit sharper. Again, not rude, 
not ungentle, but a bit sharper about these things and perhaps a bit more fierce for the faith. I'm struck here that in the NET Bible, the New English Translation, they translate these, these words as, if our God whom we serve exists, he's able to serve us. And you see what they're doing. If he exists, they're using this opportunity to respond to the king by obliging him to consider God's existence. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, you, you don't know everything. And even you, in all of your greatness, have been given that greatness by God. And you should consider the possibility that the God that we serve really is the God that we're talking about. And if you won't believe it by our deliverance, then believe it by our faith. That's the reason we had Kumi come say something this morning, because we think that goes to the heart of this chapter, that Christians in our day are not called to hide but to lovingly engage, at some cost perhaps, with those who disagree. But here's the faith behind the courage and the outreach, isn't it? It shows itself in verse 18. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, but if not, we will not serve your gods. Some people will tell you that God won't answer your prayers if you don't have enough faith. There's been an idea uh, current in some Christian circles for a century, at least, that faith uh, shows itself by answered prayer. If you pray for something, and if you have enough reserves of faith in your internal faith tanks, then in the expression of that, God will recognize that and reward you by answering your prayer. I think we need to be clear that that idea itself is unbelief and horribly mistaken. It's an essentially pagan argument which puts the thing you're asking for above the person you're asking it from. But do you see here, by contrast, these men don't do that. You see the response here. It's totally the opposite of that. Yes, God can rescue us. He is quite capable of rescuing us. But if not, but if he chooses not to, what then? Well, even then we will worship him and not your God's. I suspect this is so much a part of a daily struggle for many of us. There are things, you know, if I just ask you the question right now, what's the one thing you've really been wanting? Immediately to the, to the screen of your mind will come that thing. And for many of us, it, it will fill your prayers, it'll fill your daily concerns, it'll be the thing that you wake up in the middle of the night worrying about the thing that you've begged God for, you've yearned for it, you've been praying that God would give it to you. And who's to say that he will not? Perhaps he will. But what if he should not? Is he still the sovereign king who loves you? Is he still the one who's able to rescue you to the uttermost? Is he still the person who has brought you to himself for his own plans and for his glory and your betterment. You see, yes, the, the call does come to the brave. And he is able to rescue the obedient. But the call really is to put him first in this generation and for people to see that. And the call is here. And the call is now. Will you be brave and stand with him? Will you be obedient and keep on keeping on with him regardless 
That's the cost of following Christ. And finally, he won't abandon you. Indeed, he'll be right there with you. Verses 19 to 30. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace, which you will notice is so hot that even the people throwing them in are killed by the heat. This is one of the the ways in which we know that this is not a fable, but this is history, because it's details like that that historians and eyewitnesses notice, that the soldiers themselves carrying these men bound to the fiery furnace, faint and are killed by the heat. But then this happens, verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? But I see four men unbound. And the appearance of the fourth is like, it's like a son of the gods. My guess is it's this fourth man who's really the focus and the lesson of this chapter. He certainly, you notice, gets Nebuchadnezzar's attention. Notice it's not just for Nebuchadnezzar that three men in the fire are walking around when they should have died. It's not even, did you notice, it's the marvelous contradiction that fire has burned through the ropes that bound them, but hasn't singed their clothing nor harmed their bodies. No, it's that there's someone else in the fire with them. A fourth, like a son of the gods. And it prompts this doxology from Nebuchadnezzar. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels and delivered his servants who trusted in him. I promised that I would tell you what happened to Thomas Cramner after he saw his friends Ridley and Latimer burned to death in Oxford in October 1555. Well, after months of isolation and interrogation and psychological trauma from torture and from constant questioning, his interrogators came to him and told him these words, your wonderful, gentle behavior and modesty is worthy of much commendation. Commendation, You deserve most hearty thanks. And then they curiously took their hats off to him You see, Cramner was gentle with his enemies. He stuck as far as he could to the gospel and answered them even through his tears, confessing that he was himself a miserable sinner, utterly depending on God's mercy through Christ. And at last, when his enemies thought that they had finally broken him on the day of his execution, as he delivered the speech that had been written for him, which would please the queen and grant him a quick death, that was the deal, He suddenly changed his mind and foreswore all of his previous denials of the gospel. Uh, This was written, it was an eyewitness account at the time. Uh, This is uh, John Williams, the sheriff of Oxford, uh, turned round to him when he, Cramner had just basically denied everything that he'd already denied in his recantation. In other words, he said, no, actually I was totally wrong. Christ is king and the things that you are being taught are heresy and wrong. It is only by the grace of Jesus that any of us are made right with him. And John Williams, the sheriff of Oxford, turned to him and said, literally, have you lost your mind? Do you know what you're doing? I do, Cranmer replied. And as they were dragging him down from where he was speaking towards the the scaffold, uh, he got up and he ran to it. And he climbed up onto it. And as he was put there and all of the, the kindling was put around him, he then said these words, As he put the hand that had signed his recantation into the fire, he cried out, my unworthy right hand, 
I see the heavens opened and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then he died. So often I think we take the wrong lesson from these stories because the truth is we ourselves may be worshipping at a different altar. I find myself sometimes when faced with panic over some situation or anxiety over what might possibly happen that I invoke a kind of Disney deity that must always deliver me from every disaster. That's how I know he's God. How interesting then to come across these reports. Because these two reports, right, the first men who were rescued in Daniel 3 and the second group of men who were not rescued in 15, 55 and 56 contradict that claim. Because this is the gospel, right, of our sovereign redeeming Jesus. Not that our faith cannot bear the scrutiny of the world, it can. Not that our faith depends on our strength or our victory or everything working out for us in the way we want. It does not. But rather that the true power is of a God who is sovereign and is able to keep you even in the very place you fear to go. And I say that this morning knowing that there are many here who are facing just such a prospect. They should be in our prayers, they should be in our encouragement, but also we need to grapple with ourselves over this and stop saying, no, Lord. He will lead us where he means us to go, but he will not abandon us. No door is locked to him. No circumstance is greater than his plan or his will. And this remains his promise from Isaiah. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And who is that righteous right hand promised to Isaiah who will be with you through the worst of it and bring you safe home? Well, isn't it the fourth man in the fire? Jesus Christ faithful to you under fire let's pray lord as someone has asked why should the church pray that its way be strewn with rose petals when our master's way was strewn with thorns lord we know that the servant is not greater than his master and that we are called to the way that you have called us to go lord would you give us the honesty before you to admit that we're really not all that, we're not capable to do this alone and without your grace to us in our weakness and knowing that we will fail before we get up again by your grace, but also that you will call us to a place where we must depend upon that grace and depend upon the church as we go through it together. In Christ's name, amen.